and welcome back to On the Shelf. Today, as per usual, I have a very special episode I cannot wait to share with you all today, and it is an author interview. But not only that, this is part one of two of an interview series I'm doing with Catherine Butner, all about her two published novels. Um, we're kind of working in reverse for this one, though. Today's episode is all about Killingly, a novel. Uh, it came out this past year. It's set at my college that I go to, um, so you can understand why I wanted to do this one first. Um, but yeah, this is part one of two of that interview series, and I think you're really going to like it. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to On the Shelf. I have potentially, like, the most perfect interview for me being in my college year right now, because this book is actually set at the school that I go to. Today, I am talking about Killingly with the author of Killingly. I'm going to very quickly, I'm going to hand it over to her to introduce herself, to give some more kind of information on the book, and then we're going to get into today's question. So welcome to On the Shelf. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. I'm Catherine Butner, and um, Killingly is my second novel, first crime novel. Uh, it is set, as you said, largely at Mount Holyoke, and it follows the aftermath of the disappearance, the real life disappearance of a Mount Holyoke student in 1897. Her name was Bertha Mellish, and uh, she was a junior. And she just kind of vanished from the college one day. And I found out about that story and I was really curious about how um, her disappearance had been investigated, what had happened. And so the novel is sort of a blend. It's based on these real events. Um, it's definitely fictionalized. Uh, I wouldn't call it true crime, although some people have, have asked me about whether that applies. But I would call it a queer historical crime novel that is focused on um, more than anything else, I think just like what it might have been like to be a woman getting an education in the 1890s, a time that was not really sure how it felt about women getting educations. Interesting. I don't know if I've ever heard the phrase like queer historical crime novel before. Um, and that just makes me love it all the more. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I'm always right. making up genres. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I love it. Uh, you know, who knows? That could be the next big genre boom. We had dystopian. We crossed that off the list. Absolutely. Um, all right. And we have a couple of questions later on that are going to dive into kind of the fact and fiction of it all. But First, I always have a couple of questions that are just like get to know you icebreakers so I can get to know you a bit better as well as the audience. Um, the first of which is very silly, goofy, and I know this and I have no idea who came up with this question, but someone that I inherited this podcast from basically <laughs> um, one day asked if you were a type of plate, what type of plate would you be? A great question. Um, I had to think about this for a second. I think so I have these, I have these glass possible, like shallow, mm -hmm. wide bowl plates from Ikea that are possibly the best plate that has ever existed. So I'd like to think I would be one of those because I don't know, they hold everything. They're perfect. I you know. can eat like goopy stuff in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a fan. Kind of, yeah. I, I'm a possible. Sure. I love that. I'm I'm definitely missing our IKEA pasta bowls here. Uh, I could I could use one or two of those. Um, and I really like that answer. I don't know if I've sp gotten that specific answer before. Okay. I know we've gotten into the general range of IKEA, um, uh -huh. but I don't know. It's always 
I don't know. It's always a fun one because um, sure. it's such a wide range of answers. But the next um, kind of icebreaker I have for you, which apparently I did not write down on the document. Sorry about that. Is um, if you had to spend a year in a fantasy world, which one would you pick and why? Oh, God. You know, I mean, it would have to be one of the ones where you can telepathically bond with animals. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't really care. Like, I mean, when I was a kid, I read the Mercedes Lackey series. I forget what they were. Ooh, I forget what they were called, but it was like telepathic magic horses. Um, cool. That's a that's a hit. Absolutely. Nice. Uh, I mean, the Anne McCaffrey dragon books were another like fourth wing before fourth wing was a thing. <laughs> but yeah, anything where you can telepathically bond with an animal. Awesome. And yeah. I realized I misspoke. I was too specific. Normally I just say fictional world. Broadening oh. it to fictional world change your answer. I mean, I still want a telepathic animal bond. Yeah. So probably okay. not. Yeah. Awesome. You know, I just wanted just wanted to check. Um sure. but yeah, so getting into kind of the section that I call like the scaffolding, like what yeah. goes into the book behind the book. I'm wondering if you have like a favorite or least favorite part of the writing process and has that, or does that change from book to book? Cause as, as we've said, mm. Killing Late is your second novel. Yeah. I think, I think everything changes from book to book. Mm. Um, I, this is actually the book that I'm just starting now, which is actually the follow-up to Killingly, which uh, was Soho bought two books when they bought Killingly. So um, that will actually be the fourth novel that I write. There's, there's a, there's a trunk novel in there that no one's ever going to see. Um, and yeah, I feel like everything about what you think, you know, about how to write a book changes from book to book. Um, but I, I guess my favorite, I mean, I love doing research. I love historical research in particular, but really any kind of research for writing. Um, I love feeling like you've nailed a scene, whether that's in drafting or revising. Um, and I hate the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just the whole yeah. middle. Yeah, when you feel like there's no other side and you're just yep. always going to be writing and you never get out. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I understand <laughs> that. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. So the next question, kind of along similar lines. I always sure. like asking this one as well. I'm wondering, what's the best piece of writing advice you ever received? And if you could go back in time to when you were starting out on your writing journey, what advice would you give your younger self? I think maybe the best piece of writing that I personally received was I don't know if it was a specific piece of advice so much as just the fact that a piece of writing is never actually done. You just stop working on it, which I oh. don't think I really fully grasped mm -hmm. at all until I was in grad school, honestly. Like, I think those of us who really love writing and grow up writing a lot and are told that we're good writers when we're younger, I know in my experience, at least, I did not really learn to revise until I was out of college um, because it was just, you know, if, if writing tends to come fairly easily to you, I think there are a lot of incentives to just sort of, and, and especially if you're the kind of writer who really like kind of tinkers as you go, often you write something, you turn it in, your high school teacher, whoever says, great. And just they're, they're glad to not have to write all over your piece of paper. 
Um, and you don't really get a lot of instruction in how to revise. And I think that it really is super helpful, has been super helpful for me to understand that like no piece of writing is ever exactly static. It just, if you don't want to work on the same piece forever, you have to stop sometime, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. So I think that's a, I think that's good advice for younger, younger writers too. But I, I think beyond that, I would say like, recognize that reading things that aren't actually to your taste right now is a great idea. So like mm -hmm. try things that you don't know if you'll like as a reader, because it will expand not just your taste, but also like your sense of what is possible as a writer. It will give you ideas for things that if, if you just limit yourself to like a genre or um, a type of writing, like, I don't know. I feel like it's just great to expand a little bit and to get some range. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Obviously, as as you touched upon um, in the written question, I do include younger writers just because, you know, when yeah. we created this, we were all like very early high school students. And I feel like a lot of rarely avid readers, they kind of have that thing in the back of their brain that is like, I could do this. Of course. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Which is great. Yeah. So I, I appreciate you touching upon um, kind of both sides of that question. Um, but yeah. So continuing on and getting into, I guess, a little bit more about you. I'm wondering, have sure. you have you always wanted to be a writer? Is this something that's just kind of happened as you've gone through life? Like one day you're like, I'm going to write a book and here it is, or, sure. um, you know, kind of that process. Is this something that you do full-time? Do you just balance it with the rest of your life? What's kind of like your author journey, if you don't mind sharing, of course. Not at all. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I definitely was, was always writing as a child and young person. Um, I don't think, I think I was aware that people were writers, that that was like a professional mm -hmm. category. Um, but I don't, I didn't assume that it was the direction I was going to go. Um, I was, my parents are, were at, at various points, both um, college professors, but scientists. So it wasn't, you know, um, I didn't default to thinking that I was going to be a writer or I definitely thought about doing other kinds of work. I did, when I was a teenager, I started writing poetry more seriously and, um, but when I was in college, I actually, I only took one writing workshop, um, a poetry workshop, which was awesome. Uh, I think that I just was, there were too many things <laughs> that I wanted mm -hmm. to learn yeah. about. Um, I was such a dilettante. I was just like, what if I go over here? What if I take every language? Um, so I, I wasn't really at all certain about the direction. I thought of myself as more analytical, I think, than creative at that stage. Um, but I was also getting into fiction, and I will proudly say that I was an inveterate fanfic writer from <laughs> from being like in junior high, probably when I first started doing it. Um, and 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 at a time when there was a really active, and this was back in like live journal days, uh, mm -hmm. and, and email lists. Um, but yeah, and that that helped me start to explore fiction in a, a really generous community of writers, which was great. And so when I graduated from college, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next. And I did start writing a novel at that point, which is the one that nobody will ever read. Uh, and it was great practice. It really gave me a sense of how hard it is to write a novel, <laughs> but also the fact that I could, 
you know, that I could mm-hmm. actually produce that many words, which I think can feel really intimidating. Um, and then I started my, what became my first published novel. Um, and in the process of writing that first very bad novel, uh, I, I was pretty sure that I wanted to go to graduate school. So at that point I did um, apply to graduate schools for fiction writing. And I started um, at UT Austin in gosh, 2004. Uh and was working on my first novel, Alcestis, which came out in 2010 originally. And so that was my master's thesis, basically. Oh, wow. And yeah. And then I went on to get a literature PhD because I'm that kind of person. And (laughs) uh, in that process, I was kind of figuring out, like, do I want to just try to get a job as a a writing teacher? Um, Or do I want to be more of a literature teacher? And the answer was writing. One way to find that out is to spend five years doing a dissertation (laughs) or getting a PhD. Uh, And yeah, so I am in in some regards, you could say I'm a full time writer. I am right now I'm an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee and I teach creative writing and teach fiction. Um, But I mean, really, I'm a full time teacher and I writing is part of my job and, and publishing is part of my job, but it's also sometimes a job that I end up doing that part of it in a most concentrated way in the summer um, because teaching is a lot of work. So yes, it, yeah. it is full-time and I wasn't like absolutely like as a kid, like I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a professor or anything like that. But it definitely has um, been a path that I've been following pretty actively since my early twenties. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you again for sharing. Um, I just love kind of hearing all the different paths uh, that authors have. um, Yeah. Because I don't know, like there's no one correct way to like write a book and have it out in the world and anything like that. Um, And I think a lot of the time it can seem like there is like if you're if you're someone that really doesn't know the industry at all and just looking at Mm -hmm. all the big names in lights and on all the lists and stuff like that. Um, But I don't know. Very interesting. Um, Sure. But yeah. Um, oh, and then also a side note for listeners, we're going to have a whole separate interview about <laughs> your debut novel. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, looking forward to it. So I'm not going to really give anything away about that yet, because obviously it hasn't happened. But um, we're not ignoring the fact <laughs> that I'm just interviewing you about your second book. Um, but, you know, killingly hits closer to home for where I am presently. So I figured why not. Um, But yeah, so getting back onto the questions, um, I'm wondering if, you know, if you wouldn't mind kind of just sharing a bit about the journey of this book, kind of like from your initial idea to the physical one that I have right here and just kind of how it came to be. Because I I assume with like it being so historical and stuff like that, there's Mm -hmm. like a very lengthy research process. but just kind of how it all came together I guess sure I mean this was this book certainly did have a journey (laughs) um Mm -hmm. it so I first found I was in grad school I was working at a the rare books and manuscript archive at the University of Texas at Austin which is called the Harry Ransom Center big swanky famous place um where they have like Gutenberg Bibles and all kinds of uh cool stuff it was a great job. I loved it. 
And one day, so I was a research intern and people could write in and they could ask for like an hour of our time to look something up in the collections for free without, without having to pay anything. So a lot of those were scholarly queries. People would write in and be like, I don't know, I'm working on this book about Walt Whitman and I need you to go back in the archive and check the date of this letter where he wrote about his mom or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I one day I was doing a query. Um, we also got genealogical queries, which is not uncommon. People wanting to learn stuff about their ancestors. And I had this super broad one that was like, I think my ancestor was in the Spanish-American War sometime. <laughs> Can you please look in this completely non-indexed uh, microfilm newspaper archive for my ancestor sometime in the Spanish-American War? And so that was just hopeless. And I did not mm -hmm. find an answer for that person. But what I did find was a news story about Bertha Mellish. And mm -hmm. it was three years after she had disappeared. And it was this super weird story um, with a really dramatic headline. And because I had graduated from Smith just a couple years before, I was really struck by the fact that there had been this mysterious disappearance at a, the women's college right down the road that I didn't know anything about. Um, so I started researching more about her. I got some money very kindly um, from my department to be able to go to special collections at Mill Holyoke that summer. So this was 2009. And, um, and they don't have a ton of material about Bertha, but they do have some. Mount um, Holyoke folks can actually go look at it. <laughs> and there's like folders of uh, letters, in particular letters that other students wrote and stuff like that. Um, and you're right. Yeah. I mean, I certainly did do a lot of research. I am a research nerd and I love it. But I would actually, the much longer part of this book, because uh, you will note I said 2009 and it is yeah. 2023. Apparently, um, <laughs> I was doing lots of other like writing a dissertation and getting multiple jobs across time and all that. But also, like I would say I probably had written the first draft or two of this book by about 2012. And then I, you know, my... I'm trying to remember the exact process of all of this, but like I didn't, I hadn't sold it to someone ahead of time. So mm -hmm. then um, we didn't end up, I was still like trying to do more revision. And basically I ended up revising the book about eight times, <laughs> eight whole times. Um, and it is just a vastly different novel from what it was when I started over the time, um, those many years I, you know, put it down, picked up another novel project, wrote, I don't know, 70,000 or 70 pages on that. Um, and also was, I was actually living and teaching in Hawaii for a while. And I just got really into like eco writing and other areas. It felt kind of odd to be in Hawaii being like, I'm going to write about New England Gothic yeah. <laughs> stuff. Um, so I was trying to kind of write more things that were focused on the place that I was and, and learn more about that. And then I ended up um, coming back to Ohio and really realizing that I really did want to give this book one more polish and try to get it published. And so I got a new agent who was super helpful in revising. And then Soho, who did publish my first book, um, bought this one too. And they have been really wonderful about it. So yeah. And like I said, bought a second one. So I will be writing what's a kind of loose sequel to this book that follows one of the characters um, in a little bit more detail for like new crimes. Um, so yeah, it's it's been 
quite a process of not knowing whether for a, a long time, not knowing whether this book was ever going to find uh, its way to publication, but I am so happy that it did. And I love what Soho has done. Um, you have a copy right there that you're holding. And like, I, I do. don't know, just getting to look at like those end papers, which I'm obsessed oh, with. Oh, <laughs> I love the end papers. Yeah. Like, uh, like, I don't know. I'm I'm really enjoying Killing Leaf, but I think it makes it all the better that it's just such like a beautiful book. <laughs> yeah, I they have really done done well for it, and I'm mm -hmm. thrilled with it. So yes, it is it is a huge relief to have gotten the thing that I've had in my head <laughs> and in various documents um, into actual book form at this point. So um, and I have another somewhat similar question a little bit later. Oh. Um, but between then, getting back into kind of the history of it all, since the story is based off of kind of like true historical events, I'm wondering, how did you go with balancing like the fact and fiction? And also, how much do we actually know kind of about this story? Obviously, yeah. keeping in mind spoilers and everything. I mean, share whatever of you course. want. Sure. Um, but how much do we actually know? And like, where was there kind of you feel room for more creative liberty? Mm. Um as you were writing. Yeah, I so we, I mean, there's a fair amount of documentation of how the investigation, like the search for Bertha proceeded because there were news stories about it and mm -hmm. um, things like that. And so the, the of the main characters in the book, about two thirds to three quarters of them are real people. And the most important one who's not is Bertha's best friend, Agnes, who is another Mount Holyoke student. And the reason Agnes exists is because I felt like I needed somebody who could tell us about Bertha's day-to-day -day life and, and her feelings and her thoughts um, when Bertha herself was not there. I didn't want to have flashbacks constantly mm -hmm. to, you know, yeah. um, a Bertha who was absent. So I wanted Agnes as the kind of viewpoint character who'd be able to show us um, what happened and then also to create suspense because we know Agnes knows some things about what happened and she's not telling. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so then the question is like, you know, somebody said to me recently that they feel like the book goes from being a, maybe this is a little tiny bit spoilery, but not specific, that it goes from being a story about a question of like, what happened to Bertha to being more a question of like, well, what will happen when people find out what happened to Bertha, you know, like, mm -hmm. what, you know, will there be effects on her sister, Florence, who's also mm -hmm. had been a Mount Holyoke student or on her on Agnes, um, other people in her life, like, how will they be affected if they actually learn what happened to her? So for me, I mean, one thing that I did think about fairly carefully is nobody who is a real person in this book had children. So nobody's angry great-great-grandchildren are going mm -hmm. to come and say, because I did, you know, there I have an author's note at the end of the book where I talk about what's real and what's not. And um, I have definitely shaped the way some characters are being portrayed in ways that I probably weren't real. Um, but I'm also fine with that because I don't, I don't see this. I don't think that what happens in this book is what actually happened to Bertha Mellish because she didn't have a fictional best friend yeah <laughs> you know, like it's not possible um and I'm to me it was an opportunity to tell a story that explores something plausible something that could have happened 
something that would reveal like what living in those circumstances and being a student and being a woman who had intellectual ambitions and stuff might have been like at that time. Interesting. I will say, uh, from a reading perspective, this is kind of off topic. Just no, from sure. a reading perspective, reading it in at home. I'm from North Carolina. Reading it at home, much different experience than reading it here. Oh, I'd love now, to hear more. Yeah, because just from like <laughs> making connections. Because when I was first reading it, like no building or place meant anything to me, yes. and now I'm like, oh my god, I go there. <laughs> yeah. Like, I will, I will tell you, this is so silly, but when I, you know, walking around on campus this May, when I was there for the alumni weekends, um, I, I mean, there are actual real people that buildings are named after, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so the clap laboratory, for example, I was walking by it and I, I felt stupidly proud. Like I had nothing to do with that, <laughs> but I was like, look, it's Clap's lab. You know, she's the zoology teacher. Yeah. She was the actual zoology teacher. Like this has nothing to do with my book, but I felt very like, oh my God, look, it's, it's her name. Um, yeah. and, and I've gotten a lot of Mount Holyoke folks talking, telling me that they like, they lived in Porter or they knew somebody who lived in Porter and now they feel really different about Porter, um, because of thinking about Bertha. Uh, living there so yeah I will say at Smith I feel like we had similar stuff around like Sylvia Plath lived here you know mm -hmm. um or we Julia Child lived in the house where I ate meals oh, wow. so the best meal that I ever had at Smith was when she came back for an event and all of a sudden the green beans were not canned that's all I have to say about that oh wow <laughs> for one day oh. there was like oh. the good the good Julia Child green beans yeah uh, yeah, I don't know. Definitely, definitely kind of affecting the way I view things. And there is some line, like it was literally not important, but they were just saying like walking around the lake. And I was like, oh my God, I do that. And, oh, yeah. I <laughs> and it was just- Sadly, I think the pepper box was destroyed a long time ago, right? There's no gazebo anymore up There's on the hill. There's not a gazebo. Yeah. No. I don't, yeah, I was reading that and I was like, what hill is that? Like, because of the way names right. have changed, I'm trying to like- yeah, my map over that map and I'm like mm -hmm. where is yep. it <laughs> yeah but it's fun though it is fun um but yeah so I feel like this is a decent <laughs> decent place to take a uh -huh. break and I will say this every single time zoom's very expensive so again we're gonna take a short break perfect all right, and we are back after a short break. Um, so continuing on with kind of the book itself, um, you you did kind of touch upon um, like how you heard about the story initially, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering kind of like continuing with like your own kind of personal history in the area, because as you said, you went to Smith, which is just somewhere nearby I'm really bad yep. at Massachusetts geography uh <laughs> but you know how do you think kind of your personal history in the area impacted the creation of this book and I am curious about like how the how like the historical research actually was considering mm -hmm. that in um 1897 mm -hmm. yeah since it's set then as we kind of mentioned the campus has changed a lot like I'm just kind of wondering again kind sure of research process was your um, own personal past in the area and just kind of how that all kind of continued to shape um, the book. 
Yeah, I think because I had been a student at a women's college and I felt, I mean, I am very glad this was not really the case when I was a student, but obviously like Mount Holyoke in particular, I think does a little bit better at this than Smith right now. Like now it's not only women um, mm -hmm. exclusively at women's colleges or um, colleges that accept women and non-binary folks and trans folks and all that. Um, and thank yeah. goodness. But I also, nonetheless, I think that a largely, let me say non-cis dude school environment <laughs> is a unique thing. And mm -hmm. it has a feeling, I certainly had the experience being at Smith where I, I think many students who go through a Smith education kind of come out feeling like, of course, I have stuff to contribute. Of course, I have things to say. Like if you were in environments before where maybe only the male students were called on or things like that. And I could not imagine how much more powerful that feeling would have been in like the 1890s. Mm -hmm. Then, um, I mean, I started school in 1999. And so this was uh, almost 100 years earlier. And I mean, Mount Holyoke had been a seminary school until just a couple of years before Bertha was there. And so it was really like the beginning of just the idea of women actually being sort of a little bit taken seriously as potential academics and professionals and people who were going to make a difference in the public sphere and not just in the private sphere. Because I think, you know, initially as a seminary school, and, and this is true of a lot of colleges and women's colleges in particular, it was like, we're going to train some good minister's wives. Um, that's what we're going to do. And your sphere of influence is going to be in your home. It's not going to be like actively doing things out in the world. So for me, like that was really what I, what I was curious about was how, how the experiences that I had even a hundred years later might translate or connect to the, the sort of camaraderie and sometimes friendly competition and, and also the, the queerness of, you know, a women's college then, which in such a different set of understandings about like what queerness might have meant or like how women's relationships to one another worked and what it meant mm -hmm. to be romantic um with another woman like this was a time when you know romantic friendship between women was still just like a pretty mainstream um thing that was seen as harmless uh and and even valorate valorized um and and they were just kind of at the tipping point of you know medical um, and psychological scientists kind of being like, hold up, we understand that women may actually be sexually attracted to each other and do things about it. And this was like shocking. Um, so I was really interested because especially when I was doing the research in the archives, you know, I was looking at these uh, scrapbooks that some of the students had produced and there were all these letters, these just like very, you know, cutesy and um passionate letters to each other and all those accounts of like all the you know the cross-dressing theatrical productions all all the roles played by women and um students writing home to their parents like it's so much more fun to go out on what's essentially a date with a woman like I'd so much rather go out with Marie than with a man uh and stuff like that and I was just like this is amazing and I would like to explore it in terms of doing the actual research, there was the stuff in the archives. Um, I did go so to the town of Killingly, um, 
and and of course was on campus plenty there's so much online old documents i mean all kinds of things trying to figure out what train lines were operating at that time and a lot of this is stuff nobody would know if i got mm -hmm. it wrong but i would yeah and it it was a challenge for me to try to fit the story i was telling into all the realities of the time so that like so that you know if there's a place where they're called to go identify a body to see if it's bertha i want it to be a place that is plausibly near the train line between where she lived and school. So there's a reason why they're worried it might be Bertha, you know, like that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And to me, as a writer, that's a fun game to try to figure out as much realistic stuff as I can, knowing that, of course, I'm also going to change things because and that there are things I'm sure that are incorrect that I am not even aware of. But I think historical fiction is always... I mean, any kind of fiction is is an act of approximation where you're trying to, you know, create something that feels as as plausible and real as possible. But especially for historical fiction, the way that we do that, I think, says a lot about like us in our time, mm -hmm. what we're interested in, as much as it does about 1897. That's just so cool. I don't know. I've um, I've only gone kind of into the archives here once I didn't even fully go into it we just went into kind yeah. of the lobby area the but tour, they have like sure. yeah um but they have a little collection of like postcards that you can take yeah. from there that have like photos from all different eras of the school and like zines and stuff like that and it's just mm -hmm. I don't know it's just really cool to see um one of my roommates plays field hockey and they had a postcard that had some of the students playing field hockey from the 60s and they were yeah. like oh my god I can't believe they like wore that or like that's how they were doing Absolutely. it so it's just I don't know it's it's a cool way again this is like my personal experience reading the yeah. book but it's like kind of a cool way to get um more immersed within kind of the community and the history because um during like all of our intro sessions that we would have like during orientation and stuff like that they would talk a lot about like history and legacy and like kind of what we're a yeah. part of and we're there but I feel like they didn't really I don't know dive into all of like kind of the dynamic type things that sure. that's something that I have enjoyed um kind of seeing happen um within Killingly especially now that I can like picture the places uh -huh. and everything yeah. and it's just I don't know it's a very cool reader experience that's um, awesome yeah that I appreciate um but yeah so I have just a few questions left yeah. for you um the next of which um which I'm just gonna focus on Agnes of course because she is kind yeah. of um and she's also not real so this makes this <laughs> question a bit easier um if and ignoring the laws of space and time if you and Agnes were to meet do you think you would get along with her like let's just say that not a lot of like the weird mm -hmm. historical miscommunication would exist just kind of like sure. personality vibes like that kind of thing do you think I think Agnes would have very little time for me yeah. <laughs> I think she would just she would be like I don't understand why anyone wants like what is the good of writing things mm -hmm. <laughs> like I don't know. She's a very practical, pragmatic person. And she's not, I also don't think, I think of myself as someone who's like, 
I don't know, fairly interested in making sure that everyone around me is happy and like social, social smoothing, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, I guess people pleasing is another way to say that. Uh, and I think Agnes has absolutely no time for that. Like she is not interested in what other people think about her, except if it is a, a problem for her, right. In terms of like mm-hmm. wanting to be a surgeon or um, she knows that there are certain social rules that she needs to be alert to, but it is not. Yeah. I think she would think I was kind of silly. (laughs) No, I mean, that's a very valid answer. Um, Honestly, I kind of love when authors say that their character would not like them just because I don't know. It's just very interesting seeing like the different relationships that authors have with their protagonists. Sure. Um, I mean, I love Agnes. I think she's amazing. (laughs) But even though I recognize a lot of people have said like, oh, you know, she's not necessarily super sympathetic. I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, I think she's perfectly sympathetic. Um, But I get it. Like she's she's a tough sort of a little bit prickly character who doesn't. uh, She has a hard time imagining like worldviews outside her own. I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have a somewhat, um, this might be a weird follow-up. No. Just because I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like with these types of projects where you are writing about um, like real people and you're kind of getting inside their heads, um, I don't know, you can, not like attachment, but you can kind of like understand them, that type of thing. I'm wondering if there was anyone throughout like your research process that you were kind of Mm. learning about and you're like I wish I could have met this person like I feel like we would have gotten along or something like that or maybe someone that you're like no we would not have gotten along I don't know just kind of yeah anything like that or like someone you think well I will say the best um line from some a reader review I've been I have not looked at Goodreads I've not looked at Amazon I'm I'm trying to be good about that but Mm -hmm. sometimes people tag me and stuff on Instagram which I I don't mind I think it's kind of delightful and one was uh, a woman who at one point there was a line in her review that was like this book made me never want to talk to a man again (laughs) and I was like yeah okay fair (laughs) yeah so um maybe that I don't think Hammond and I, I I definitely do. I would say that like uh, older men who think that they know a lot more than the younger women that they're talking to are definitely a category of people who I am not a huge fan of. Yeah. Uh, Having encountered them, um, honestly, doctors in particular, sometimes I've, I've had Mm -hmm. that experience, right? I think a lot of, I think a lot of non-cis people, non-cis dudes have had the experience of like, you know, seeing a doctor and being patted on the head, essentially. Um, but you know who actually I'm really excited about for, for the next book? There was an entire plot line of this book initially that was cut in the most uh, most recent set of revisions before it was published that was about my version of Nellie Bly, the female reporter. So the uh-huh. next, next book is um, Higgum, the private investigator, and Nellie Bly, my version of Nellie Bly, fight crime in New York City that's focused on queer working class folks in like the Lower East Side. There's a, a guy who's killing essentially um, people people who are being targeted by this like reformist preacher. Um, and so, yeah, so with the next book and, and Annie, my version of Nellie Bly, I am obsessed with her and I think, and she's so much fun to write. And so I'm really en- enjoying working on that. And I think She's somebody I would absolutely want to hang out with. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I 
absolutely a few years ago I went down the Nellie Bly rabbit hole yeah there's a lot Yes. That made that made younger me absolutely so happy. I cannot wait. <laughs> yes. Um, so the next book yeah. is 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 Higgum and Annie Soft Crime. So that's so exciting. Um, but yeah, um, uh, kind of switching tones, going back to what you're saying with the review. Um, this is kind of along the same lines. When I was applying to colleges, I have a friend that goes to Bryn Mawr. Mm. And who's a year above me and I was kind of asking her of like oh what's it like because I knew I was applying to some of the seven sisters I wasn't sure which ones and she was like it's great you never have to see a man if you don't want to it's the it's the best <laughs> college experience and I was like noted <laughs> I'll keep that in my back pocket um, yeah yeah I do I mean again I don't mean to I don't mean to sound totally misandrous it's not that but I did yeah. I I think that it is sometimes hard for us now to imagine like just how profoundly infantilizing yeah. a lot of attitudes towards women were for so long. Um, and I think particularly like the 19th century just had a real, a real attitude about that, you know, and oh gosh, I mean, even, I don't know if you've ever watched Mad Men, but I have trouble even watching or like there's an amazing um, British procedural called Prime Suspect that was made in the 80s. No, maybe made in the 90s, but it's set in like the 80s and 90s. And the entire thing is just men like being awful to Helen Mirren's face. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to watch. And it wasn't that long ago. And so yeah. I think just like communicating how frustrating and um I don't know, just like how much women had to sort of struggle against just to even be able to do things in the world and be taken seriously and all of that. Like, yeah, I think it's a fair reaction to be like, I don't want to yeah. <laughs> after being kind of marinated in that for a book. So yeah. Um yeah, I I that review, I love it. It made me laugh so hard. <laughs> I was delighted. Yeah. And then again, just especially kind of how important the fact that uh women's colleges especially as we were kind of talking about earlier like the gender diverse women college experiences yeah. um like like Mount Holyoke like how important they are to mm -hmm. the students there I remember um when I was telling my friends that I was coming here they were kind of some mixed reactions sure I got the same absolutely uh, a lot of people just being like I've never heard of that before um but that was fine and it's just like I don't know and now that I'm actually here it's just such a different experience um and I don't know cool and it's cool and then also sometimes nerve-wracking reading this book where I'm like ah, like it's sure. so cool but at the same time it's like someone disappeared from here yes absolutely uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Just I don't even remember the point of what I was saying, but I I know what you I know yeah. what you're, I I agree with what you're saying. Um and yeah. Um continuing on with the questions, we sure. strayed very far away from Hard just not to. you and Agnes would get along. <laughs> but, yeah. Um that's okay. That's kind of the whole point of on the shelf back when we would do our group discussions as everyone knew I would get on a tangent about something. So <laughs> um but yeah so 
Next question. This is a new one I've only asked a couple of times, but I really like asking it. I'm wondering if there is something that you just like knew had to be included, whether it was kind of like a certain place, an event, a meal, but something mm -hmm. just like meaningful to you and just meaningful mm -hmm. for the overall book experience and for you as the author for it to be included. Well, two things. One, um, and this gets into a, not exactly spoilery stuff, but when I realized that before she died, Bertha was just about to argue in a debate about like the justification, justifiability of vivisection and that the zoology students used to dissect cats, which like I'm a cat person. This was really hard for me to write. And mm -hmm. that um, Hammond, the family doctor, was a cat breeder. I was just like, what is this weird cat theme <laughs> like what is this yeah. animal theme that's happening here so I knew that I had to go in and that was a challenge for me because again I'm a cat person um but I I really felt strongly that like first of all attitudes that we have towards cats culturally are very tied up with like attitudes we have towards women mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like um you know we sort of feminize cats and masculinize dogs and a dog is man's best friend and a cat is like bitchy you know uh and things or like, like that the witch is familiar yes like that exactly type of thing. yeah absolutely independent untrustworthy sneaky all those things um so that had to go in there from like a thematic kind of sense yeah but the fun thing that i felt like had to go in there was um in those scrapbooks that i looked at in the archives there were these amazing it was just right around when people were uh started to be able to own their own like personal cameras so there Ooh. are snapshots right and of like people's dorms and the greatest thing was seeing sure some of the dorms look very formal and and fancy and you know old old timey but then you'll also see a picture that's like you know louise's laundry and it's like somebody's dirty clothes at the foot of their bed and you're just like they they are just like us you know mm -hmm. um and i think that was what I, one thing i really wanted to get across was like they used to have parties where they would like cook fudge together and that was it was like the equivalent of making brownies with your roommates mm -hmm. or whatever and i just really wanted to get across that sense of that, that it was just a really warm kind of I don't know supportive environment in a lot of ways and and that it is a recognizable you know they're still college students uh I felt like that really had to come across and I I love that <laughs> I, I could not have think of anything smart to say at the end of that but I did I do know really it's great that um uh, and that's something that I've um, discussed um, with another author, just like about historical fiction and really just like being able to like kind of humanize your characters and yeah. showing the reader, like despite the fact that this was so long ago and we might not love the character, like they are a person and right. just all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I think it definitely comes across. Um, but yeah, so Great. I have just a couple more questions, just some kind of ending comment type yeah. things. I'm wondering, um, what do you most want any prospective readers out in the audience to know about your book? Kind of some like final remarks or something like that. Sure. I, I will just mention some of the books that were kind of in my orbit of inspiration when I was thinking about this, because I think that can help people figure out if a book is right for them or not, um, mm -hmm. or something they might be into. Um, big secret history fan, or at least big first part of the secret history fan. <laughs> 
controversial opinion. I don't think the ending is quite as good. Um, I, not as mine, just like I think the first chunk of the secret history is amazing. And then I am a little less in love with the latter section. Um, huge A.S. Byatt possession fan. If I, For me, one of the inspirations there was she does all this amazing stuff with like, you know, some of the documents in Killingly are real and some of them I wrote. And that's true, it, you know, A.S. Byatt's possession has all these like fake Victorian poems and letters and it's amazing. It's a wonderful, funny, weird book about academia and Victorian poets. Um, and other things like Shirley Jackson, I thought of this book as being kind of New England Gothic. I think I mentioned that term before and I wanted to, it's not a ghost story in a in a strict sense, but I wanted a little bit of that vibe. So I think it, it's been really hilarious to me over the last like five years of watching the the term dark academia come into existence and then sort of peak. And I think we're sort of past the peak a little bit now. But um, my students who knew about this book as I was working on it were just like, oh, my God, it's dark academia. It's, it's exactly <laughs> what it is. And it's true. I would say that is exactly what it is. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. So the last two questions I ask every single author, every single time, both with their specific reasoning behind them. Um, the next one is um, what's on your shelf? Because as I've said, the name of the show is on the shelf. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are you reading these days? Right now I'm in the middle of Sim Kern's um, The Free People's Village, which is like solar punk eco fiction stuff it's interesting that's my other set of interests is environmental writing and things like that and then I'm about to start um, Margaret Duaihi who I think teaches at Emerson now so not too far uh, from Mount Holyoke has this series that's like a queer nun noir Mm -hmm. um, and I think Odyssey has had posters of her up because I think she's yes. a Hampton based I think so. Anyway, so I have the ARC of her next book that in that series that's coming out. I think it's it's called Blessed Water. So that's next. Yeah, one. I'm excited. I have uh, I have a connected story to that really quickly because yeah. I bought the first book in that series mm -hmm. and I went up to go buy it and the person that was ringing me out was like, "Have you heard of Killingly? It's also oh, a mystery." And I was amazing. like, "I assume yes, this I was have. an Odyssey." <laughs> Yes. I yes. Okay. Odyssey. Good. <laughs> it's like I've had my coffee, but thank you. Um, I love to hear it because they were like hmm, mystery. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that I don't know. Um, despite the fact I, I, despite the fact I had already had my coffee, it did make me happy. It always makes me. This is kind of similar to what you were saying of like seeing clap and being like, oh yeah, I have that experience when I see like um like authors I've interviewed like their Absolutely. books being connected yeah. to things you feel like and being you like friends in the bookstore I yep. interviewed them oh my god like that just it made me happy as a reader just because I oh, love talking you about books. Me that that's great um yeah. my friends sure have known that I've been talking about this for a <laughs> while and I was like the interview's happening and they're like finally <laughs> oh <laughs> um, well I hope you'll give them some relief at this point I will um <laughs> but yeah so back on track the last question I always ask is the shop small corner because a little bit of a spiel for that is way back when in 2020 when on the shelf started we were directly affiliated with our local independent bookstore in North Carolina Quill Ridge um mm -hmm. so whenever I have an author on I like to 
ask them to kind of maybe shout out a local indie they like as well as where mm. people can kind of find you in the internet sphere um and just kind of sure. places where people can get killingly yeah that's great so killingly is everywhere thankfully um i but my local indie is boswell's books in or boswell's bookshop i should get their name right in milwaukee they are wonderful amazing they do so many events and they are super supportive of writers when i was in cleveland uh there was another little indie called max backs that are great supporters and they might still have a signed copy or two uh of killingly hanging around there as well odyssey uh, right across from Mount Holyoke have, have been really wonderful supporters of the book too. So I would, I would, I would definitely encourage people to visit and or order from any of those. And in terms of finding me, I finally caved and got an Instagram account <laughs> in the spring. I don't know. I was trying to resist because I knew it would suck me in and it did, but I also, I don't know. It's fun. Bookstagram is a great place and I enjoy getting to see what people are reading and, and what other writers are doing. So you can find me there, just Catherine, at Catherine Butner. Awesome. All right. And for listeners, there's going to be the links um, to the bookstores that you recommended. And those are going to go on the map, which will also be below. Um, now that I'm here, I always include Odyssey links, but I will double super make sure the <laughs> yes. Odyssey link is down there. They deserve as well it. As I always include... Um, a link to Quill Ridge in North Carolina, just because my local indie um, love to just kind of shout out whenever I can. Um, but yeah, so all that will be down below as well as where you can find on the shelf social media, Catherine's social media, all of the various links that you need. Um, thank you so, so much for joining me today. This I is great. So excited about this for the <laughs> longest time. Um, I was like weirdly really nervous to email you because sometimes it's like if I when I go to email an author I like feel like I can't physically pick the book up um it's like I hear something and sure I was like, oh no I was like I go to Mount Holyoke how can I not finish killing me? um well, I'm glad it worked but, out and thank you very yeah. much this was great thank you absolutely made my day so happy this is happening I will you know we're gonna have another interview quite Sounds soon good. um yep. But yeah, just thank you again. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say? Nothing? Okay. No, I'm just, I really enjoyed. It's been like an unexpected benefit, I think, of of the book. Oh, I guess I should mention, I will actually be visiting uh, in oh. spring. So that's just getting organized right now with some folks in the English department. So more so, to come. Um, Odyssey will, of course, be in the loop for that once we get it figured out. So yeah, I'll be back in the area. So, all right. Um, yeah. So for listeners, that's all I have for you today. I will be back next week with another author interview. I don't know who it will be because time is weird. So we will see, <laughs> but there will be an interview next week. Um, and just thank you so much again. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed. If you did, I hope you would take a moment or two to maybe read us on whatever platform you listen to on the shelf on so even more people can find it and then maybe find their next favorite book um we will be back next week with another author interview and in a couple weeks will be part two of this interview series all about her debut novel um uh, i think i don't know it's 
by the end of that interview, I will know how to pronounce the title of the book. Um, but yeah, so that's going to be out in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. So as always, I'm Nora Quinn, and this is On the Shelf. Thank you.